This podcast is brought to you by the Love Serve Remember Foundation and Ramdas.org. Welcome to Ramdas Here and Now. This is going to be part two of our Conspiracy of Consciousness talk from Ramdas. Um, I can't remember when, early 90s maybe? Can't remember this one. See? The research department has uh, failed me again. So, you know, uh, hopefully you you have to listen to the last one, okay? If you're listening to Part B, you have, because you won't be able to quite get it uh, the same way. And, you know, and it's about, because uh, th- what happens here is he takes a turn into talking about how um, these kinds of projections we have of ourselves uh, that we encounter, and, th- and that's how we encounter each other, and uh, and that this predicament is uh, is is this conspiracy we get caught in, is because we realize that we're we're doing this shit to ourselves. We are creating this stuff out of our you know aversions and and likes and so on. So and now he's transferred this into so this uh, part B of this talk talks a lot about social. Action and particularly through, which is another interesting thing, this group called Social Venture Network, which he was helped to to launch. <clears throat> he um, so this this Social Venture Network it's set up to bring sustainability and justice into business. So now he's taking all that individual. How do we deal with? Uh, Spirit and business, basically, and uh, you know, and and going on to examine the interplay between uh, um, mindfulness, between you know, ego, soul, life stuff, uh, and particularly on the economics issue and, and moral issue, uh, just to get so you understand, you're seeing the unfolding of your life, and so he's transferring all of what he talked about in part A. So, not <clears throat> fulfill your roles as vehicles to become free. That is the essential reason for us to be here. Aside from the Tibetan, I mean, this is from me, the Bodhisattva vowed not to, um, until everyone is free, you'll work to help people. So, uh, and then when you say become free and he says like, what does that mean? Well, why, why, why should we do this? Why? And, uh, Ram Dass's answer is forget why, just do it. When you're free, you'll be why. So let's just go right into this part B. I'm going to remind everybody again, and I did this in part A, you must take a look at the new book from Ramdas with Rameshwardas, Polishing the Mirror, How to Live from Your Spiritual Heart. I mean, it, it's, uh, it really is a wonderful book. Of course, I was deeply involved all the way through it, so I'm quite familiar w- with the material. In fact, as I said, did I say this? I'm repeating myself in which part is now I'm getting to. That's why we don't do parts here, folks. Um, but basically, 
there are passages in here that were used in this book as examples of of how to deal with polishing your mirror. And the great story in here is how he talks about the love remember, love serve remember box set. And actually, Ramesh and I were involved with Ramdas in that in uh, in the mid seventies, and. Uh, so Ramdas insisted, just like be here now, that a book would sell for like four. Uh, the uh, record set would sell for four ninety eight. The book was three thirty three. Things went up, and uh, so his father saw it. I mean, he's going to tell this story, but uh, briefly, his father saw it, and and this is the famous story. And he said, "How can you sell it so cheap?" And Ramdas says, "How can you give your legal services so cheap?" He said, "Because it's Uncle Henry. What, what are we going to do? It's our relative." And Ramdas goes, "Well, who is an Uncle Henry for me?" And that's really, um, I, I, where, where did I, I, somewhere either, I wrote this to somebody, or uh, oh, it's probably uh, stuff because we're we're changing stuff up on the on the website. That's another thing to announce, folks. Uh, those of you who are listening right now, the, this over 500-hour media library has been made completely public without uh, uh, having to, uh, you know, go through, get user passwords and donate or any of that stuff. We're now we're just, uh, uh, we figure people are going to support no matter what to make this stuff available. So, um, so that's happening. Um and and in it, I said, you know, Ramdas's legacy, without sounding too saccharine, you know, is this. Maharaji said the first time he was there, don't tell anybody about me in America. And Ramdas could do nothing but that. Now, of course, Maharaji knew he was going to do that. And that's why, you know, we've all been exposed and gone over some of us and met him without meeting him physically, thousands of people. And Ramdas, but that was also Ramdas. That's his thing of sharing, you know. And uh, uh, that that story, uh, you know, that's a wonderful um, emblem of what uh, he has done, bringing this stuff back to, to America. Okay, enough of that. Um Get the book, though, Polishing the Mirror, and tune into the website, and uh, we love your support in any way. This is Ramdas here and now. And I am one of the stakeholders, but just one of them. And to start to relook at business, like just the issue of sustainability of resources, sustainability of environment. I mean, what kind of consciousness shift in business is there where the economics of making decisions that recycle or renew or limit the use of non-renewable resources, when does that value system shift? Like, I've just been through a bizarre set of dramas about this because when these companies attempt to shift the game, the society doesn't say, oh, how wonderful, somebody's reminding us of the Dharma. If you are making, you know, 50 times what your next employee is making, you don't want to be reminded of that particularly. You want to stay within your rationalizations. And what happens, very interesting, is like um, Anita Roddick in the body shop. 
Anita is a very caring human being, and she really wanted to involve indigenous peoples in developing countries with the opportunity to make livings, serving with products, and so on. And she tried. And she's also a hell of a saleswoman, and she just said what she was doing. She's got a huge company. I mean, it's a multi-billion dollar company. And the amount that that product is is a tiny, tiny little segment. So the press comes along and says, phony. The press says, you're bad because you're saying we do this, but you only do it a little. Now, I think she overstated her case. And I think that if you're going to play this game of shifting the business mind, you damn well better be impeccable. Because what you open yourself to is the cynicism that exists in a system when it tries to change. One of the major articles criticizing the body shop was published by one of the other members of Social Venture Network. It's like one club. This is a group of people that have come together to bring sustainability and justice into business. And so Business Ethics Magazine published this article by Antine. Antine just was out to get. He was 60 minutes journalism kind of mentality. Connie Chung, you know, get him. Because it makes good news, good media. So we came to a meeting where really the, the places was dissolving into camps was such a hot issue. Because this meant loss of millions of dollars of revenue to the body shop meant that many of their um, franchisees were threatened whether they could survive because they were suddenly being labeled as bad guys. And um, one of the very wise people of our organization, Josh Mailman, who started it actually, he said what we need is a Quaker-style meeting. So we had a meeting an open meeting around the issue and we said to everybody and they asked me to lead the meeting and we said let's just deal with people's feelings about the situation since the facts are going to be interpreted one way or the other let's not stay with the facts at the moment let's just deal with the feelings and between each person's comment let's have some silence and let's just hear each other and there must have been 200 people in the room and just different people spoke up about their pain or their feeling of the responsibility of journalism, or the responsibility of businesses, or the conflict within a family, or, or how everybody should go ahead and do it. I mean, there were all the different ways in which we were hearing it, but we were listening to one another. And we came out of that meeting feeling like the organization was finally justifying itself, because we were growing in hearing how clean businesses had to be and how they had to work. Like the result of that is very interesting because the result of that is that a uh, Kirk Hansen, who is a professor at the Stanford Business School, a very reputable, wonderful professor, has been hired now by the body shop to do an external audit of their socially responsible practices. In other words, what you do ultimately is you self-audit or you hire an independent agency to audit you and publish the results. In other words, Body Shop is going to be able to say, we're not good and we're not bad. We're just, we're working at it and this is how we're working at it. And every error that Kirk will show us, we'll do what we can to start to clean up our act. That's a constructive next step in this whole process of changing. I, I mean, sorry to belabor the story so much.
but I think it's an important uh, way of showing you what bringing Dharma into it is about. It's to reminding people to not get so locked in polarization that you don't hear the, the compassionate human side of it, the process going on, and turn it back into a process, into a dance, into a movement. And I am amazed in that organization of going from five years ago when I first went into that organization, was invited in, because I'm not a business person. Uh, they have a small percentage for sort of weird and kooky people. And they snuck me in on that one. Couldn't even pay the dues. They went from treating me as somebody's aberration, you know. And in five years, we've changed around until we are really, really listening to one another. And I went into a situation where when business people were talking and I'd come into the room, they'd think, there's the holy person. They'd stop talking until I went away because they were putting through a deal of some sort that I wouldn't be interested in. <laughs> and over the years, we've just come slowly, slowly, slowly to listen to one another and respect one another. We just had an incredible conference called Spirit and Business that Bernie Glassman, who's a Zen monk in New York, and I co-chaired. And the business community invited us in, and we did mantra together. And we had a fire ceremony, and they threw pine cones into the fire. I mean, they couldn't believe they were even doing it. <laughs> One point, Mitch Kapoor, who started the Lotus Company, was throwing his pine. He looked at me like, could this be happening? You know? <laughs> So I, I, I think I'm telling that story, I'm sure, out of self-aggrandizement, but uh, I, I, now we need to cool it down. Whoever does those things, thank you. There we go. Tighten your seatbelts. Um... I tell you that story because what I'm interested in is us examining the interplay between mindfulness, between, in a way, the soul and the ego, between your life stuff, the stuff of life, like the economics of life, and the moral issues and all of the stuff. So you're quiet enough to just sort of feel your way into how it is and start to work with understanding the unfolding of your own life from a very quiet place inside your own being. So you're not so busy doing it all the time. It's funny, we all have this, this cultural thing. What do you do? What are you going to do today? Well, what are you doing? Hi, what are you doing? What have you been up to? And yet, the thing we yearn for, the satisfaction, the feeling of fulfillment, comes out of the beingness in the moment. And this is why this book on aging, pardon my randomness, but it all fits together in my mind. This book on aging is so appropriate for me to be dealing with at this moment, not cause, just because I'm uh, 64, but also because that whole quality of quietness, of reflectiveness, of space, of, of the wisdom source, the intuitive wisdom source, is so scrunched out of the society by our obsession with technology, which makes old people obsolete, 
with our dysfunctional mythology because it's all around thinking your way out of everything and being an activist. Like there was a moment when I was talking to a guy who writes speeches for Bill Clinton in the White House. And I said to him, tell me, in the White House, is there anybody there that is not in a line capacity, that doesn't have power, that is merely there to hold the space? Is there anybody reflective, not reactive? And he reflected on it. And he said, no, there is nobody. Probably the cat or something. <laughs> but all the people are all busy. It's like putting out fires all day. They're all busy reacting and thinking their way out of and, and just like that all the time. And if you recall in the old days, um, heads of state used to have elder councils or something. They recognized there was wisdom, and the wisdom came out of people that stood back from the game enough to have some perspective so they could say, yeah, that's true, but consider that. And we have, in effect, lost that. We don't value it. And now there's an interesting moment in history because as the baby boomers become 50 starting in 1996, the numbers in the system change so that the old people are just coming into power. I mean, the AARP doesn't even know what to do with all its power yet. That's the American Association of Retired Persons that all of us are become members of after 50. Because it's a great lobby for insurance, for housing, for food, for medical care. It has no consciousness at all about inner work, social role, about change. It's amazing that aging in a youth-oriented culture is seen as a problem. Can you imagine a stage of life being a problem? And we get caught in it in our own minds. My skin is sagging, I got a problem. I'm not sexy, I got a problem. I don't have my worldly power anymore over a lot of people, I have a problem. Look at the difference between a problem and now what will I do? Now what can I be? Now what can I open to? Because these things we're talking about, about the perspective that comes from soul in relation to ego, that comes from just standing back that little bit, that perspective is exactly what aging as honored properly brings into the society. Because at that stage of life, which we have no rituals for entering the stage, we do not articulate the roles within that stage, we don't respect it, and it's not going to come from young people who say, oh, you know what we're missing? We're missing old wise people. It's going to be the fact that the old wise people have the numbers and they're going to say, you're going to respect us because this is who we are. And we're tired of buying your model of who we are. But we're caught in it because we were you just a little while ago, laying it on them, and now we're them, and it stinks, so we're going to change it. Because when we were us, we had the numbers, but now we're them, and now we have the numbers, so it's all going to change. So believe me, every bus is going to kneel. Every senator is going to kneel. <laughs> Thank you.
what I saw in my own life was that I, if I weren't very mindful, I was going to just slide into a way of looking at myself that was the cultural consensus of who I must be because of the age I was. I just saw it happening. The story I tell, which I'm starting my book with, actually, is being on the train in the evening going from Westport, Connecticut to Grand Central Station. And I, the Westport station was closed, and so I had to buy the ticket on the train. And the conductor came through, and he said, tickets. And I said, I have to purchase my ticket. And he said, what kind do you want? I said, do I have a choice? And he said, regular or senior? I was 62. I had never thought about that before. It was a new choice. And I said, senior? I did it like when I was 18, I went in for my first beer in New York. <laughs> beer? One of the bartenders said, let me see your identification, you know. This guy didn't ask for my identification, he just gave me a senior ticket. I said, how much is this? He said, four and a half. I said, how much is a regular ticket? He said, seven. Aha. Uh -huh. <laughs> I was very pleased. But as he walked away, I had this ticket that said senior citizen on it. And I realized I had put on a coat that was very strangely fitting. It certainly didn't have any inner experience of who I was. I didn't think of myself as a senior citizen. And I saw how much other stuff went with that senior citizenness, that it didn't come free. But it didn't come free. It came with a whole lot of attitudes and values and expectations and so on. And if you look at the role models we have for aging, for successful aging, it's people that stay young. That at 230 are still playing tennis. You know? Now, there's absolutely nothing wrong with playing tennis over 100 years old. I think it's superb. I mean, <laughs> blessings to you. But to make that the role model seems to me to have some massive denial in it. It really does. And I'll take it even further to just push the idea that when the body starts to break down, to treat those changes as only pathology and not as the conditions for work on consciousness, it seems to me it's blowing a hell of an opportunity. It seems to me that your life offers you a set of circumstances to work with, and everybody's got them. You scratch the surface of everybody in the room, and there is suffering. Everybody. A little bit here and there. And that stuff... Once you see what your curriculum is, that becomes the grist. That becomes the stuff you work with through which you become aware. That's the soul's way of working with the ego storyline. The soul is using the egos as the world turns, its melodrama, its storyline, as its vehicle for working out its karma. Now the question is, where is your identity? Is your identity with ego, with soul? And then, of course, we've got identity as awareness. And I'll tell you that until you figure out that you fulfill all the planes and are attached to none of them, you don't even begin to understand what freedom feels like. Because freedom isn't pushing away any plane of consciousness. 
so that when taking care of dad, I realized after he died what an incredible teaching that had been for me. What a gift I had received. First, I had come back into the family. I had come back and honoring my father in this way. That was part of my incarnation, to honor my father. That's the way. He took care of me when I was a baby. Now I was taking care of him. But also, it was the completion of some work with us. And he went from being one personality to another. And as his personality changed, we met in new ways. And we met in new ways. And we came up until we were just being together. And I saw that when I had completed that, when Dad died and I was completed the estate and all that stuff, that I had honored that component of my incarnation. And honoring didn't mean holding on to it or grabbing it or pushing it away. And I saw that back in the 60s when I turned on and I got so high, I said, the family doesn't understand. I can't hang out with them. They bring me down. I've got to go do my own trip. For the benefit of all beings, you understand. (laughs) And I finally had to understand that to honor my incarnation meant to honor the systems of which I'm a part. And it's led me much more to be involved in politics, much more to be involved in social issues, much more to be involved in uh, philanthropic stuff, much more to be involved in health issues and so on. Not out of any goody-goody, you know, aren't I good to do all that? But after a while, you just, it's like you're settling into a hot tub. You're settling into your dharma. You're settling into your way of being in life. Somebody comes up to me and says, I'd love to meditate. I'd love to do spiritual work, but I have these kids. You hear something wrong in that? I'd love to run the marathon, but I have arthritis. Now, where is the suffering there? Partly the suffering's in the arthritis. But partly the suffering is in the, in the tension created by having the desire of I could be happy if I were doing this, although the conditions are not allowing me to do it. I mean, I just look at what happens when you get old. You start to lose your hearing a little bit. You can't see so well, and you don't move so fast. And when I go into a meditation course, it's funny. What you do is you pull your awareness in from your ears hearing, from your eyes seeing, and you sit still. <laughs> Could it be that there is a message? (laughs) That there is an inner curriculum for human beings? That they are finally free to explore, but they're too frightened to explore it, so they keep clinging to repetitions. Andrew Carnegie, when somebody said, you've got so much money, why do you keep doing more? He says, I forgot how to stop. I forgot how to stop. You and I are playing with this deliciously delicate process because if you push too hard to get free of what you've been trapped in, that very pushing entraps you. The avoidance of stuff becomes a trap. People would say, I've got to live in the country. I can't stand the city. It brings me down. They're like crippled by that concept. If I choose, I'll choose to live in Marin. It's lovely. But if I don't live in Marin, it'll be lovely. If I do live in Marin, it'll be lovely. It'll all pass. It's all disintegrating. It's all very precious. The moment is the moment. I presented a a model, a functional model for practice, for conceiving of what the spiritual journey is about. 
And what we had when we looked at the whole story of lifetime, of incarnation, is we have what you'd call ascend, descent, ascent, descent. You have, and descent and ascent isn't value judgments, it's just a directional statement of movement. Awareness has, in some mysterious way, which you don't know, has manifested as a multiplicity of entities, which we will now call souls. And those each have their own unique karmic storyline. And those souls then take incarnation somewhere or other when it's appropriate to work out whatever they're working out. And we are that product to the extent that we are egos. We are somebodies. We come down and we become somebody. And as that awareness starts to identify as a soul and immediately feels separate from the totality, <laughs> and then it takes birth as a body, and then when we are born and then we separate from our mother and all, we begin to experience another separation now as ego. So it's a separation within a separation, if you will. That's the descent into more and more dense form. And that form is what we live out as an incarnation. Somewhere along the line in that story, we awaken. We begin to realize that we are not only the incarnation, that there is more to us than meets the eyes. And we begin, the more than we think we are, we are. And that leads us to relook at our experiences and to open to new experiences that allow us to enter into other planes of consciousness, other perspectives, other ways of looking at it. And that awakening starts, and at first, because you have been in such a, a thick substance, you've been so feeling often very entrapped in your story, in your body, in your suffering and whatever. When you awaken, there is a joy, a breath. It's like coming above the smog when you fly. But there is also... Um, a kind of fear of getting trapped again and a tendency to push against the stuff you were trapped in. You can use that like a rocket booster to get you out there, push against. It's the renunciate path, basically. But ultimately, as you get established more as a soul, more established as just awareness, which isn't even you anymore, as those become more real and you become comfortable in them, then you look and you see that the incarnation that you have taken wasn't an error and it wasn't a failure and you're not making mistakes. It is just an unfolding process. And it's nothing so personal about it all. Your personality isn't that interesting. And at that point, you start to... Uh, from a soul's point of view, start to inhabit your incarnation at first resignedly and then ultimately joyfully because it's just God at play. It's just form. So you went from the descent into form initially, then you awaken and awaken your awareness going into more and more until your awareness is awareness. That's the ascent. And then there's the next stage where the ascent starts to finally stop pushing against the more dense forms and enters into them. And then there is the descent. And then you see that the whole process is constantly the ascent and descent. And it's all, it's just a liquid process in which both are going on all the time. You're constantly bringing spirit down into form, and you're constantly as form moving towards spirit or moving towards formless. It's the dance of form and formless. It's the dance of the devotee and the guru. It's the dance of the lover and the beloved. 
It's a dialogue that goes the foreplay, the consummation, the foreplay, the consummation. It just keeps dancing back and forth in those things. And you begin to experience your life as that, as moving in and out of all of these planes all the time. And there are some, uh, there's some just incredible literature that describes all this. If you ever have a chance to read any of Sri Aurobindo's works, there's a great poem of Savitri, which describes the goddess coming to earth as Savitri and her experiences on earth with full consciousness of her planes, her higher planes along the way. What we call an avatar is somebody who takes birth on the physical plane but doesn't get lost in it, remains aware of their spiritual identity all the way through. Most of us get lost. And then we wake up a little bit or more or less. So with that backdrop, we can see that a lot of our spiritual practices are moving us from ego to soul. We're clawing our way up out of the darkness, supposedly, which turns out not to be dark at all, but it seems shadowy from where we've been. And we claw up, and then when we're a soul, and we're established in soulness, then we start to have that beautiful dialogue that, the, that Rumi and Kabir speak about, the, the intimate with the beloved, with the guest. Where are you, O oh friend? Where have you been? Where can I find you? I hunger to be with you. And there is this other kind of... It's no longer a practice. It's like a making love celebration of the many with the one. You're constantly, ah, ah. And I can only invite you to read that poetry, to feel that, to feel that the separation of you from all of it is not a mistake. It's not a failure. It's part of the dance of form and formlessness so that you are the one and you are the many. And then after that, the next part of the practice is the practice of integration, of learning how to keep all this going at once, how to have integrity across your life so that you don't act one way at a retreat and then go out and act another way later, so that you learn how not to get lost in the stuff of your life, but to stay aware and yet stay involved. That whole integration process is, is very, very fascinating because you keep feeling as your mind is quiet how you keep getting lost one way or another. I mean, a lot of people go into la-la land and as I usually kid, they lose their zip code. They, they, don't lo they lose their ground. They forget their ground. They're so high and spaced, they lose their ground. And many people are so afraid of losing their ground, they won't take a little leap. They won't even open to the soulness of their being because they're afraid of loss of control. Their mind is so strong, the ego mind is so strong, they're terribly frightened of losing control. And the integrity of the whole system is that you and I are meeting as personalities, as egos. You and I are meeting as souls, and there is awareness here. And all of that is true. And how are you and I going to figure out how to be together like that? Not be together as egos hoping to become something else, but actually be together where those three planes are real for us. So when we meet, you're meeting yourself, really, in a different form. In marriages, when I uh, work with couples or, uh, in, or perform marriage ceremonies, things like that, I always visualize a triangle. People come together, 
And when it is the yoga of relationship, through each other, they meet the being that lies just behind the awareness that is both of them, the one. And they come into the one through each other, through all of the forms of their dialogue with one another, making love and talking and cooking and walking and all of it, are all vehicles for meeting in the space of just shared awareness which is sweet like the smell of orchids. It's that quote from the I Ching. And then that one dances as two. And to get to the point where you're involved with somebody in relationship, in work, in marriage, your children, and you're aware, and you're both aware of the play of the forms, and you're delighting in it together, the play of the forms, which are your separatenesses. And that's an extraordinary experiment, extraordinary experiment. And the tricky one is keeping your consciousness mindful enough so you don't get yourself trapped in a role or an identity. But you're constantly fulfilling your roles, but always as vehicles for becoming free. Realizing that what we are about here on earth is to become free. And why? Forget why. Just do it. <laughs> And when you're free, you'll know why. That's the promise. You'll be why. You won't know why, you'll be why. This podcast has been brought to you by the Love Serve Remember Foundation and Ramdas.org. We appreciate all the support for the Foundation and for Ramdas's work, and we hope that you will continue that support. You can go to Ramdas.org and click on the Donate Now button and follow the prompts. Thank you.